welcome to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. This is your host, Jazz Bear, and today's guests are Drs. Todd and Kim Saxton. They are an award-winning professors at the Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, as well as co-authors of The Titanic Effect. The book is a practical guide to help startup founders, as well as their investors and supporters, successfully navigate the icebergs that so often sink startups in the ideation and early stages of development. They'll tap into decades of academic and professional experience in business strategy, entrepreneurship, marketing, market research, and venture-funded startups to help you navigate the dead bugs that so often sink the early stage startups. This is the first part of the interview, and we are going to be covering risk versus uncertainty and the stages of startup. So let's welcome Drs. Todd and Kim. Pardon King Saxton, um, a professor at in Indiana University, Kelly School of Business, as well as co-authors of The Titanic Effect, a book that's a practical guide to help startup founders as well as investors and supporters successfully navigate what they call icebergs uh, or roadblocks that often sink the startups. Uh, over 70% startups fail and they help. They have personally uh, invested, helped launch companies uh, in different industries. And today they're here to talk about, well, they're going to be here for a number of episodes talking about different subjects uh, within startups. But today they're going to talk about uh, risk versus uncertainty and uh, stages of startup. But before we begin, did I miss anything out? That sounds perfect. Yes, thanks. And, and a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Great. So let's talk through a little bit about your experience. How did you kind of um, get into this arena and how did you start off? Well, I'll... I'll talk a little bit. I really, uh, from childhood, and, and I don't to what degree uh, you might have experienced this, but I was kind of the started at seven as the, the uh, street urchin selling newspapers on the corner, the Philadelphia Bulletin when it existed, and then inherited my brother's paper route and, you know, mowed the neighbor's lawns and shoveled their walks when it snowed and that kind of thing. So, you know, in its own way, as a, uh, <laughs> a youngster, you know, that's, that was kind of my expression of entrepreneurship. Uh, as I got into consulting work, and that's where I met Kim, was in a consulting firm in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, was doing a lot of acquisition consulting, and we were working primarily for larger organizations, Fortune 500 kinds of companies, actually a U.K.-based company called Bowater uh, PLC that we did a lot of work for, and they were looking for strategic partnerships or acquisitions of small, uh, in some cases new, in other cases established firms. And the interesting side of the equation for me was always what was going on with the small company and hearing the founder story and what was important to them. And yeah, you know, in a negotiation price was an element, but it was much more about protecting their employees, protecting the product that they had created. And it, it just gave me a, a, a different appreciation, I guess, for the story of the smaller company, the newer company. Uh, and the role that plays and, and what those founders or, or family-run uh, businesses, what they really care about. And that resonated with me in terms of better understanding that context. So as I moved into research as an academic, uh, looking at the small business and new business was uh, very appealing to me, both in my teaching and my research. And I would say that similarly, once we got here in Indianapolis, so we haven't lived in Indianapolis or the Midwest our whole lives. We're both from the East Coast um, of the United States. Uh, we started trying to understand the community. What is business like here? And we have a very vibrant startup community. 
And it was just really easy to get involved with them. And then, you know, people say, oh, you're a business school professor. Come help us. Tell us what we should do. And so over the last 20-ish years, we have probably worked with more than a thousand startups. Um, and so there's just a breadth of experience that we ha now have. And sometimes that help is just, we'll listen to your, your issues and see if we can offer suggestions. Sometimes it's formal. We're on their advisory board. Sometimes they give us equity. We've co-founded some um, startups. We've had some uh, startups fail. <laughs> you know, We started investing in startups. So we, we kind of have seen the whole breadth of what is in the world of startups. The one thing we haven't seen yet is the breakaway hit. We're still <laughs> waiting for that one, but you know. The, the unicorn. Yes. The unicorn. We haven't like quite seen the are. unicorn yet. We have friends who were part of a unicorn, so we watched the unicorn, but we weren't part of it. We've seen some mosquitoes, definitely. And we definitely <laughs> see mosquitoes. <laughs> and in the sense then, obviously you have a lot of experience and if you've worked with the over a thousand startups and co-founded some of them, how much work were you involved in? Was it more of kind of, you know, were you more passive? Were you more involved in actually getting them set up and actually going and, you know, finding the customers, doing the pre-work? How much was your, your involvement in that? That's a great question. And, and it's really very much a continuum. So, uh, and, and we tend to view our energy and, and our involvement in combination with dollars that we put in as kind of a bundle of assets. And there's a continuum from those where we never from day one put any money in, but help them a lot in terms of trying to find product market fit, think through fundraising strategy, connecting them to our network, et cetera, and ended up with equity that way. Uh, and then we have some founding teams where we really believe in the technology. The founder is really strong as, as a CEO. They have a good team. And, and we don't really need to do anything other than invest some money and help them on occasion if, if we can. So I, I would say that those are the ends of the continuum. And, and we pretty much participate anywhere uh, in between in terms of some combination of dollars. Our investments have ranged from $1,000 to, let's just say, much more substantial. <laughs> A lot more than that. <laughs> um, and I think our role has also varied. So like we... Uh, last year, we bought a company that somebody had. We tried to figure out how to make it scalable. I ran all the marketing. I, you know, I paid all of the bills. I, you know, did everything setting it up. Um, and ultimately, we discovered it really wasn't scalable, and we shuttered it. Um, so, quick loss and move on to uh, even one that is a startup investor-backed startup in health IT that is starting to scale now, uh, we were the first two employees. And I, again, wrote the first website. <laughs> so, and then we figured out who the CEO ought to be, and we recruited him. So sometimes we're very hands-on, and sometimes we're you know, pretty far away. It's really, you have to go where people need or want help. One thing we've learned about adults, you can't tell them what you need to teach them. They have to ask to learn. Sure. I mean, you see a lot of people, there's a lot of business coaches out there. I'm a business coach as well. And, you know, and probably you perhaps got a similar kind of question to you earlier on in your journey where you're saying, you're just professors, you haven't had a startup. How can you come and help us? How can you coach us? What was that like? I mean, I mean, how can someone who's, um, obviously you'll touch on that a little bit. What was your experience prior to you, uh, you know, working with startups and, you know, doing, starting up yourself? What was your experience before that in terms of business? I know early on in your journey, you, you were doing 
you know, paper rounds and, you know, like we all of us yeah. do at some point, that kind of gives us an indication where we are going. Yeah, we both graduated, taught in economics. I had a marketing degree from MIT and we got into consulting. And so we had a lot of experience. You know, I looked at everything from super premium ice creams to hospital supply distribution to manufacturing of printed circuit board laminates. I mean, just crazy stuff. And so that gives you a breadth of perspective. You probably talked to 200 plastics processing firms. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have to learn what are the dynamics of business? What are the dynamics of an industry? And then we started our own consulting firm where we did that selling directly to large companies like General Motors and then even smaller companies on those kind of services. And then we went and got our PhDs. And then the publishing process is pretty long term. Like one paper took us eight years from the first time we wrote it to it was in print. So I got a little bored and I decided to uh, go back into practice in marketing. And I was the head of new product development for one of the major market research firms in the country. And I got recruited to Eli Lilly and I was there for about five years, including uh, running a team of nine people in market research and then taking over as the marketing strategy person for a new product that was launching. And then I had a lot of money. My budget was like $5 million a year. Wow. And I went from there to a startup in the pharmaceutical world where I was excited when the company made its first profit and total revenue was $15 million. And I had a budget of like (laughs) (laughs) $100,000, which is still a nice budget, right? For a business. Um, and so then came back to academia. So we both have a, a wide set of experience. And I think when we start talking to startups, they start asking us questions. They pretty quickly realize that we know a lot more than you would associate with, with a business school professor. Yeah, I, I'd say a couple other elements to that. One, I'm sure there's a selection issue. I, I think people who are concerned about kind of the ivory tower mentality are probably less enthusiastic about seeking us out, uh, and and that's fine. <laughs> we don't want to kind of push that boulder uphill. But also, in addition to kind of the the questions they ask us, I think a lot of, of establishing that rapport is about the questions you ask them. And if you're asking the right questions and are actually listening, I think you can establish a bond with people, even with very different levels of status, experience, etc. Honestly, it's almost more the reverse for me. We're, for example, we, you might be familiar with Guy Raz and the How I Built This uh, podcast, uh, and they've had a summit the last two years, and we go and we do some mentoring. And I, I often find myself bringing up the professor role kind of sideways, like near the end, because I don't want them to be like, oh, yeah, you're, you're just an academic. And if anything, the response is generally very positive that that, that actually gives us additional credibility. So surprisingly uh, to me, in some cases, our role as an academic uh, doesn't seem to negatively affect our, our credibility. So we appreciate that. Awesome. And that brings me on to, you know, your, your fantastic book, The Titanic Effect. Now, how did that come about? You know, it talks about, you know, the, the 32 roadblocks or icebergs that, you know, 
that entrepreneurs, startups come against. Talk a little bit about that. How did that come about? And what are those 32, if you can name all 32? <laughs> we have an acronym, but I can't remember. <laughs> well, it was really from all of those uh, startups that we were working with that we started to see some patterns over time. And you would kind of see this issue and a decision they were making. You're like, wait a minute, I've seen this decision before. It didn't go so well that time. I don't think it's going to go very well this time. And so we got together and we reviewed a lot of literature about startup failure, like some of the startup autopsies and graveyards and, and things like that. And we just made a list of all of the mistakes that we were seeing. I mean, and they weren't really mistakes. I, that's an unfair description. More, it's a decision point. And you have to make a choice and you don't really know which is the right choice, but then you forget about the constraint that that choice brought. And that's the problem. And so what we wanted to do is call them out so people would look at them and go, oh, if I make this choice, here's the problem I'm going to have next and try and keep track of them. And that was kind of our whole goal. Yeah. And and more specifically, to how this project and the book uh, kind of came to be. Uh, it started probably five plus years ago, and the lean startup was really gaining momentum, business model canvas being used increasingly as a tool. Uh, and you're, you're probably familiar with technical debt for those uh, who listen to your podcast who might not be as familiar. You have to make decisions, particularly in software, but even with physical products, early on to get to a prototype or or get to that minimally viable product, the MVP, so you start getting customer feedback. Um, but it's pretty flimsy, right? It, it's, it's definitely not scalable in the sense that you can take that first MVP and start selling it to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people. So technical debt are those choices you make early on to get to that you know, kind of duct tape and, and uh, cardboard model that you then have to scrap and rebuild on top of so you have a foundation you can grow on. And our third author, Michael Cloran, who's a serial tech entrepreneur, talked a lot about technical debt and what his firm, Developer Town, was doing to help startups with technical debt. And Kim and I, because of our, at that point, you know, 15 plus years of experience, recognize that it's not just about the technology, it's about the people that you associate with, how you allocate equity early on. It's about your messaging to the marketplace uh, because of the lean startup everybody was running around pivoting and, you know, they'd start uh, uh, in one direction and, and we'd get to them, they, they'd be having coffee with us after their third or fourth pivot. And, you know, we're, we're kind of listening to their journey and we're like, well, wait a minute, are you supposed to put this in your car or in your body? Uh, you know, it's this algae-based, uh, you know, additive that started out as a, a fuel con- reconditioner and was ending up as a food supplement. And it's kind of like, you got to realize you have the same name and you've been broadcasting this message, you know, and, and you have a market out there now that's confused. Uh, so you have these different segments of, of customers that have heard a very different value proposition description of what you're doing. And every time you pivot, you are creating some hidden debt that you need to overcome. It's not that you shouldn't pivot. It's just that you need to be aware of kind of the baggage uh, that you make when, when you do that. So that gave us this kind of underlying framework of, there are these not just technical debts, but hidden debts that are below the surface, which led to the visualization of an iceberg, uh, as you see behind us. We're not actually in Antarctica. Uh, this is just a trick of the, the screen. But uh, th- when you think about icebergs and you think about potential failure, 
at least a lot of people's mind goes to the Titanic. So I'm kind of like the superficial naming guy. I was like, I know, we'll call this thing the Titanic effect. That'll be really cool. Uh, and Kim and Michael kind of rolled their eyes and were like, yeah, catchy name, but we should probably see if there's any substance there. So I'll turn it over to Kim for that part. <laughs> so I, I like to do research and I started doing all the fact finding I could about the Titanic and reading books. And the I'm, White Star Line. And right? the White the Star Line. And um, I'm unraveling these things and I'm discovering, oh my goodness, you know, they made this mistake too. And they made this mistake and they made this mistake. And actually the reason it was such a disaster was because these mistakes combined. It wasn't that any one mistake was, was the catastrophic issue, but it was that the two things. So for example, they, um, they wanted to have a really luxurious promenade and suites that were today in the U.S. It would be about $100,000. So that's a pretty expensive boat ride. And so they didn't want people to have an obstructed view. So they took out the lifeboats. Right. That would have been okay, right? Because they had actually enough lifeboats for all the people that were on board, except that only 8% of the employees on board knew how to load the lifeboats. Or for a majority of the, the people were engineers, scientists to keep the engines running, and people who made really good coffee and knew how to make little, you know, towel animals to, to put on your bed, not trained in safety procedures for uh, disaster, etc. So uh, those two pieces kind of interacted to certainly exacerbate the, the loss of life. Well, they were never expecting it to sink, right? No, they, <laughs> exactly. were never, they weren't expecting to hit an iceberg. So that's, I mean, that's what we do in the book is kind of look at how these different choices combine. And that's what we see with startups too. You know, if you invest in this product feature, but you don't have a customer for it because you don't really know who you're talking to, then you've wasted a lot of money over here. And then if you pivot wildly and you haven't, done anything to talk to the right kind of people and clean up your message and be consistent, then that creates new problems. Is the book available on Amazon and or is it directly from yourself? Okay. Oh yeah, it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Farm. Yeah, most of the major most online the major, and physical. Yeah. And I we see it in Australia, you know, their largest online retailer. Um, so it should be very broadly available. Anyone listening, do check it out, the Titanic effect. How do you answer when someone comes to you and says, isn't entrepreneurship risky? Uh, a 25-year-old uh, or, or even 20-year-old comes to you and says, isn't that risky? Should I go mm -hmm. get a job? What do, what do you say to them? Well, so that raises a, a great point about kind of one of the fundamental premises of, of the book. And, and first of all, if you think of risk as a, a significant chance of failure, absolutely. As you stated uh, in the opening, over 70% of startups fail. And that means you can your venture can sink uh, or crash and burn, and you can lose money of people, maybe even friends and family. And, and to that degree, it is a risky activity. But actually, the fundamental kind of journey of the entrepreneur is really much more about uncertainty than it is about risk. And now you go, okay, yeah, there's the academic talking, right? But I'll try and make it uh, kind of in interpretable. The difference between risk and uncertainty is that risk tends to be probabilistic, meaning you can assign uh, a likelihood of outcomes across a range of those outcomes. So for, if you think of like games of dice, for example, or cards or board games where you roll dice to get to a certain activity and, and you know, get a yes or a no, that's all risk-based and you can calculate that. 
games of, of uncertainty or activities that are uncertain, uh, you don't know the probability of outcomes or even the range of outcomes. So you have some sense that your venture could fail or be wildly successful, but is that you know the fabled unicorn? Is that a mosquito? Is that a little bug that gets swatted immediately? Uh, and no way to assign probabilities of what's the likelihood of this being any one of those, right? So uh, that actually activates a different part of your brain when you're engaging in uncertain activities uh, as opposed to risk. Uh, so risk is more calculative, more analytical. Uncertainty brings a, a little bit more of that kind of fight or flight component in people. You can actually get better at navigating uncertainty. You and I could spend a lot of time studying how to roll a seven, and we're never going to get any better at it, right? I mean, the odds are always going to stay the same. But if we, through experiences, if we, through some education, if we, through learning some tools to be able to spot icebergs and navigate around them, people can get better at navigating uncertainty. And that actually balances the part of your brain that fires. So you have a combination of analytical as well as uh, kind of the more emotional component that activates, which is, is great justification for us as, as teachers, as, as professors in teaching entrepreneurship is there are parts that can be learned. This isn't simply a matter of rolling the dice and, and luck and therefore entrepreneurs are either born or, uh, or, or lucky. There is actually a part of the journey that you can engage in that, that makes you more comfortable with and better at that navigation process. I don't know if that helps answer that that risk question, but I think it's important to, to kind of tease out what parts are risky and what parts are uncertain and uh, hopefully give some encouragement that yes, it, it is risky, but there are ways to get better at navigating that uncertainty. I was gonna say, if you give me, let me give you another more concrete example. It's kind of where we got the aha about risk versus uncertainty. Yeah. Um, we like to mountain bike and we started mountain bike when we were 40. So it's never too old to learn new things. And we were in Germany a few years ago, six or seven years ago. And um, we had a day off. We were there for work. We had a day off. We said, oh, let's rent some mountain bikes and let's go do this mountain bike trail that we saw. And so we start doing it and we are going like virtually uphill. <laughs> so I think it was a thousand meters uphill over like two miles or a mile so and was, a half or something. It, it was, was crazy. Really steep. So we're biking, biking, biking every like 20 minutes. We have to stop and catch our breath and we bike for a couple hours and we lock the, the bikes up because there's a place to eat um, lunch at the top. We eat our lunch. We come back to the bikes. And now we have a choice. The choice is to go back down the way we came, which was very steep. And gravelly. And gravelly. And turns. And had bumps. So there's a high likelihood that you would pick up a lot of speed and get out of control and maybe crash, right? Or we had this map and it showed this little squiggly line that showed that you could go around this other way and get to a road. And so we stood there. Do we do the risky one that we already know what it looks like? Or do we take this new path that we have no idea what it looks like, but it does connect right. to a road, right? That explains it. <laughs> <laughs> and so we stood there and we were looking at it and I don't like uncertainty. I'm okay with risk, but I don't like uncertainty. So I'm like, let's take the road back that we already did. And he's looking at me and he's like, no, we don't want to do that. Let's go this way. Let's give it a try. We can make it work. So, and so we go like a short period and we had to like get off and climb over these trees and things like that. And I'm like, let's go back to the risky way. 
And finally he says, if you will just go five more minutes with me, I think it'll get better. And it did. (laughs) And we survived. (laughs) And you survived. So it was a bit of a leap of faith, but yeah, you have to sometimes take that road. In your opinion, is there a shift now, a global shift where more and more, you know, younger people uh, are thinking about entrepreneurship and moving away from the job model? Because people are now starting to realize that you can no longer achieve the dreams, live the life that you want to live, you know, doing typical, typical traditional job. And you can't really be yourself in that. You can't express yourself, your talents, your skills, and reach the highest that you want to reach. You become very robotic. And again, with new technology, with AI coming in, a lot of the repetitive stuff's being wiped out, slowly but surely wiped out. So you think there's a, there's a global shift now towards entrepreneurship? So I think there's an increased interest. There is some, at, at least within the United States, as an educator, it's a challenge because while the appetite for entrepreneurship, for all the, the good reasons that you note, uh, is increasing, and entrepreneurs, you know, 20, 30 years ago, was kind of like, why would anybody be an entrepreneur, get the corporate job, and, you know, you have your whole path for the rest of your life. And today, people cringe when they, when they, they hear that or think about that. But the, the challenge is that the, the, the kind of, to uh, use the term, the millennial generation, but, but a lot of people kind of in the 20 to 35 or 40, they like the idea of entrepreneurship, but they also kind of want like the, the recipe, the, you know, so what are the three key things I need to do to be the next Facebook? And, and it just isn't that easy. The, the navigating uh, the uncertainty is, is way too complex. So it's hard because while there is this increasing appetite, there's also an actual higher fear of uncertainty or a lower tolerance for ambiguity and, and so those are kind of like offsetting dynamics in terms of the enthusiasm for, but also the, the, the fear or, or the concern. And hopefully by you know, the, the book and, and other things like it that are out there, that is something that, that we can help, right? That, that uh, collectively we, not, not just the two of us, but that is something that, that we can help. And it's never going to be a recipe. It's never going to be here, the, the three steps, the five steps, whatever. The playbook just just isn't that easy, but providing help, providing support along the way, I think is going to be uh, really important. And there still is a role for the larger organization. I think larger companies need to get a lot smarter and a lot better at supporting and encouraging that internal entrepreneurship and finding ways to not just keep, but but actually motivate and incent people to invent within, uh, to, to exercise their entrepreneurial interests and have some of the autonomy and mastery that you're talking about, uh, but do it within an umbrella of a, a larger organization that's actually providing some of that help and support. I think we're going to see some fluidity. I think people are going to go into one path and then switch and go into another path and then switch and then go back to another path. It used to be that if you didn't get into a large company early on, you pretty much never could because of the way the trajectories were set. But it's not that hard to be a freelancer. I mean, the gig economy is here. If you have a skill, you can choose to deploy it in a company or you can choose to be outsourced from a company. And then maybe then you roll back into the company. And then maybe at some point in time, you realize there's a whole other scalable operation you could do that would meet the needs that the company can't. And so I think you're going to see, and, and the fastest group of new entrepreneurs are actually people that are 40 and older. Wow. So it's yeah, 40 and older. 40 and older is the fastest growing group of people. 
and more likely to be successful. Yeah. And why is that? Because when I come across and I speak a lot of people, you know, the, 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 the idea in their head is, you know, I'm getting married or I'm married, I have a kid or kids, are they going to going to university? It's too risky. I don't want to do this. That's why, that's what I hear a lot. But you do a lot more research than I do and meet perhaps a lot more people. Why do you think that is? Well, you need a paycheck. I mean, mm-hmm. the, that's one thing why the older group is the fastest growing because they've already, they've accumulated their wealth. And so they're not worried about their next paycheck. But it, when you're young, right out of university, getting married, starting a family, I mean, you have to worry about a paycheck. And, and as you're an entrepreneur, there might not be one. So, but I, we see a lot of the gig economy, right? So at least here, we've got Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, freelance graphic artists, freelance content marketing. I see some startups where somebody was successful growing the startup and they turn around and say, hey, as a uh, revenue officer or growth person, I can actually have a service where I teach other companies how to grow themselves. And so that's why I say it's really fluid. Like you're part of an organization, you develop a skill, you recognize you can actually sell that skill. And then either that's a lifestyle business, which is, I'm not going to complain. If you're making money and you're setting your own hours and you have a lot of freedom, that's awesome. But then maybe that's scalable. Maybe you can put something together where, you know, there's other people helping you. It's not just a lifestyle. And so I think we're going to see a lot of fluidity. And then you do that really well and the company buys you. Another company buys you. Now you're part of a big company again. (laughs) That's what I'm seeing is a pattern of people who have different roles at different stages. They experiment with being a startup then they get acquired or they take a corporate role. They just go back and forth as it suits their lifestyle. One of the things we talk about in, in the book is what we call the PEP model uh, PEP standing for passion, experience, and persistence. And it's that combination of those that uh, kind of leads to successful entrepreneurs in, in our experience. So if you disentangle that a little bit, the passion piece uh, is something that a lot of, of younger folks uh, are, are very passionate about, but they haven't actually had enough experience to identify where's the gap in the marketplace and, and have the network and the resources to actually be successful. But the flip side is, you know, the 40, 50 plus sometimes kind of lose that passion. They have a lot of experience, but they're not kind of active or mindful in terms of looking for opportunity. I think the enthusiasm for entrepreneurship has kind of spilled into a much broader demographic group. So now you do have people that are kind of mid-career and and looking at their environment and, and some of the things you were talking about, feeling like they're kind of, you know, either stuck on the wheel or, or just punching a clock or whatever. So they have experience and they see gaps in their marketplace uh, and they really understand that market, uh, whatever vertical that might be. Um, and they now have this, this network of contacts who are potential customers or employees, and they have some deep insight into a problem and they become passionate about solving that problem. Then it's a matter of, are they persistent enough to be able to maybe initially, you know, kind of do the, 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 the paper uh, the paper venture uh, that is pre-revenue and any ideation while they're fully employed, hopefully putting a little bit of money away, and then maybe move toward that being a part-time thing and, and starting the, the company and eventually being able to, uh, to go full, full pledge. But I, I think the, that 40 plus seems to be, and there is some good research behind this, that seems to be that balance of passion about solving a problem, but enough experience to know uh, that they have insight into that problem and they, they know the people to talk to to be able to solve it. 
what, what I'm getting here is, is pretty much 40 and under is more about being a freelancer and that, that kind of gig where above 40 is more now. I'm more serious. I have the experience. I don't need to worry about a paycheck and I, I can now go this and then turn that into a, if you like, for the rest of my working life, I want to do this as a business. That's, that seems to be the pattern. That's a broad generalization, but you also have to remember that there are some younger people who have come into mean. So like mm-hmm. if you were early at Facebook or some of these unicorns that are taking off, you, you have the wherewithal that you can make that choice at an earlier stage. So it doesn't have to be just at 40, but that's, I, that, that's the trend we're seeing is that there's more success after 40 and a, a higher uptake of entrepreneurship after 40. And I think that kind of explains it a little bit. Um, but that's not necessarily everybody, right? So, and I, I would never uh, uh, discourage an entrepreneur at any age no. or, or any level. But I think more the message I'd like people to take from this is there is hope after forty, after fifty, and, <laughs> and even older. There is hope, and you can be successful. Don't let that hold you back. It's not just a young person's game, but it is still very much a young person's game. Whether that is participating in the gig economy, self-employment, or you know, starting something that could be scalable and, and learn and think about what is best for your own kind of personal preferences and, and goals. You know, since we have a lot of students, we get exposed to a lot of new business ideas. And one of the ones I was like taken aback by recently, I, I came across here in town, is a group of, they're like four to six years out of college. So they're all in that 26 to 32 age range. And they're creating a peer-to-peer microloans. So like, you know, you can't pay the rent this month. So you go get a small microloan so you can pay the rent or buy a new car, you know, just that last little bit you need to buy a new car and somebody else in your network ends up loaning you the money so you don't have to go to the bank. And so people who have money are helping those that don't have money, but it's not just the impoverished. It's, you know, peer to peer, like really cool idea. They all were business school students and they had, you know, good jobs and finance and marketing. And, and together, they banded together and threw that to the side and said, we're going to you know, create this new company. And they've just gotten through an accelerator and they're gaining some traction. And I mean, we'd love to see that. Why not? I mean, you've got five years, really good experience in the corporate world. And now you're ready to go take on a big problem. And maybe it's a problem you live. And so you kind of know what that problem looks like. It's perhaps the persistence piece, right? If someone's over 40, they have more persistence than some, perhaps someone younger. Who, someone like me who sometimes you know, wants it now. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the now generation. I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning to be more patient and persist, persistent. But perhaps that, that's where that comes in. And what kind of patterns are you seeing in terms of growth of startups that go through, that, that they go through? Yeah. So um, we have sort of, we've looked at this from a number of different places. For one, we got a data set that was in the United States, all companies under 100 employees for five years. We have five years of their um, size and revenue data. And then we looked at uh, a number of like, what's the path to success. The first thing that's interesting, and that large number of companies under 100 employees, it's like 4 million companies. So it's a large data set. A surprising number of companies have no growth at all. They are stable for a long period of time. So they just say the same size. That's sort of the little bit more of a family business or a little bit more of a lifestyle business. I started something and we're, we're got our group and we're just going. And, and then we see a lot of differences on the upper side and the lower side. And so that led us to, well, 
what's the process that an entrepreneur has to go through? And the first stage is what we call pre-revenue, meaning I've got some ideas. I don't really know what's going to happen with those ideas. And you'd be surprised. Sometimes that pre-revenue stage is years long. So they're thinking about what problem to solve because we know just bringing a solution that doesn't have a problem is not going to be successful. So they're honing in on what exactly that problem is and where is there an opportunity to make money solving a problem. And that's the pre-revenue stage. And from that, they kind of narrow in on a couple of different paths and they start creating a product offering. And that's what we call the minimally viable stage. So you've got something that you can put into people's hands and start to see, can we get to product market fit? And usually that product market fit takes anywhere from four to seven years. And then you get to the place where you actually know you have some product market fit, you know who your customers are, you know what the products they need, you know how to deliver those products. And we call that the replicable stage because now you're repeating your business. And then finally, you get to the scaling stage. And this is where you've got the right product, you know what the selling process is, you know what the marketing process is, and you get enough money to light a fire and the company takes off. Now, for most companies, what people don't realize when we see these unicorns, et cetera, that that process is usually 10 to 15 years long. So right. It's a long process. Right. And, and what are some of the kind of best practices to manage, you know, growth across the startup stages? So I, I think particularly early on, uh, we see entrepreneurs kind of keep a lot of things close to the vest that they don't want to share too early or they're either embarrassed or afraid of, of uh, failure or negative feedback or they're afraid of kind of giving away the secret sauce. Uh, and so one I would say is share early and often and not just with your friend and support network. They're going to do a lot of, you know, oh, you know go, back. Yeah, go for it. Awesome. I never buy that. Um, so, you know, go to... to Strangers go to people who are, you know, in two or three degrees of separation away, um, but, but know something about the problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, so I would say first, again, share early. Uh, second is experiment often. Uh, so this idea of the lean startup done effectively, you're really thinking almost like a scientist. You're creating hypotheses about what might work, what might resonate with the market, and then testing that systematically so you're getting feedback so you're, you're pivoting, but you're pivoting strategically as opposed to what we call the pinball entrepreneur that continues to run into things and bounce in a different direction without uh, really a, a plan about it. Can I give a great example of yeah. those two points before you get to the next one? So, and this is one we got from the How I Built This podcast, and it's a story we bring up in the book. And this is uh, Meiju from the Chesapeake Bay Candle Company. She had this idea that um, fashion was happening everywhere, but in the home. And she wanted to come up with something that was going to be fashionable items in the home. But she didn't 100% know what it w was. So she had this you know, idea, this pre-revenue idea. So she went to a, a gift show and she took uh, several products, maybe four or five different products to see what do people, these are people from that are retailers who come and buy products that they are going to put in their stores, uh, the gift show. And so she had a bunch of products out there and she took orders for them. She didn't have any products actually to no inventory. She was just learning, figuring out, do people like this idea of fashion for the home? And it turned out that like 90% of the orders that they took 
which was like a half a million dollars. So a reasonable amount wow. of orders were for these really beautiful candles with really fresh new fragrances and things that people hadn't ever seen before. And, and that's where the candle company came from is this experiment she did by listening and talking to the marketplace. And they built that up and sold it for $35 million, you know, like five-ish years later because they were now in Target and Bloomingdale's and, and all over. So I think that's a really good example of those two ideas. Yeah. So the, the third one I would say in terms of um, kind of game plan uh, is what we call now, next, and navigation. Uh, and actually just put a blog out uh, that, that Kim wrote on that uh, on the website. But we learned this from mountain biking also, that mountain biking, there's a, a, our, our mountain biking coach uh, uses the term the now and the next. And in mountain biking, you always have to be very aware of the now. Like, what's the rock that's underneath you? You know, if, if you're about to fall, where can you put your foot down? How can you fall safely or, or protect yourself, et cetera? But also the next, because if you're so focused on what's underneath you and the trail goes around an, an edge and, and, you know, falls off a cliff to the left, you want to actually know <laughs> that enough, you know, a few seconds in advance so that you're, you're adjusting your path accordingly. And in the venture world, we've, we've added the navigation piece, which is at some point you kind of have to step back and say, what's the journey that we're on and are we still on track? So now is like the activities you need to gauge, engage in immediately. Uh, and that might be... A domain name, yeah. a website, uh, you know, some product line, who is going to fulfill it. Coming up with your brand, coming up with... And, and those are things that you can be active in. You don't be kind of paralyzed by this long-term uncertainty. There are things every entrepreneur can do today to move the ball forward. But you also have to be mindful of not just the activities today, but also what is that getting you to? Where's the next customer coming from? When are you going to need funding again, et cetera? And that's kind of the next. So you think about the now as being activities in the next few days to a week. The next is being two weeks to a month out or more. And then the navigation piece is what's our ultimate vision here? What are we passionate about in terms of a problem? And in the path that we're on, are we getting to that ultimate kind of vision of, of what we re really care about? And, and to give you, you know, a more concrete example there as well, there, there's an, an entrepreneur who kind of that we work with that got caught up in this whole, I've got to go raise, you know, $100,000, then a million dollars, then VC money and build this big thing. We're like, well, that's a strategic choice, but don't fall into the trap of feeling like to be a successful entrepreneur, you've got to raise a lot of money. If you're doing what you love and selling enough of whatever product it is or technology to kind of keep the lights on and be self-employed and you're doing some consulting around it, that is a successful entrepreneur as well in, in our mind. And that navigation piece is kind of connecting what problem you want to solve, what you're passionate about, but also what does success look like to you? And don't get trapped in the, you know, everybody saying, oh, you should go raise money or you should go, you know, try and be the next unicorn. Um, that's not for everybody and that's not what's going to make everybody kind of satisfied in their long-term uh, journey. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we are now coming to the end of the episode. Would you like to say anything else before we close off? Yeah, just get started. Don't overthink it. Take some action. And I'll add up to that, keep navigating. So never lose uh, sight of the fact that there are icebergs out there, but there are also ways to navigate around them. Well, but once again, thank you so much. We have come to the end of the episode, but not end of our journey together. We will hopefully have you back for the next episode and we'll be talking about the biggest icebergs pre-revenue stage 
And that's, I'm sure, is going to be as jam-packed with value as this one was. Um, so yeah, stay tuned. Once again, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of Only the Brave Have Fun. I hope you got some great value and insights from this episode. If, and if you're someone who wants to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur, then I have some great free resources for you. If you visit www.jazbearaurora.com, that's www.jazbearaurora.com, and drop me a line, I will send you an ebook and also a one-hour masterclass. And also... Um, Go and take the Escape the 9 to 5 survey, uh, which will help you understand where you are right now um, and where the gaps are in your knowledge to transition from being an employee to an entrepreneur. And if you're a business and you need help growing or if you have any uh, issues that you'd like to discuss, then yeah, once again, visit the website and I'll be more than happy to help you. Thank you for listening.